Hey, hey, welcome back to another episode of The Curvy Critic with Carla Renata here at Black Hollywood Live. Did I dig Men in Black and what about being Frank or Emmanuel? Stay right there and I'll tell you all about it. You're tuned into Black Hollywood Live, the world's first digital broadcast network devoted entirely to urban entertainment and pop culture. Tune in right now. Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode, episode 64, to be correct, for The Curvy Critic with Carla Renata right here at Black Hollywood Live. If you haven't joined us before, please pop on over to YouTube and join the chat room. I will talk to you live there like I do Michael B. and Marlon Wallace and Boss Solid LaCostra Noster who are there right now. Also, pop on over to iTunes and to Spotify. Give me some five stars. Give me some comments. Let people know that you love me and let other and let me know that you love me, too. I would appreciate it. (laughs) So um, I wanted to just say that it's been a really interesting week for a variety of reasons. But today is Father's Day. So to all my fathers out there, happy Father's Day. I sent a a message to my own father. He is so crazy and funny. If you go over to my Instagram page at The Curvy Critic, you'll see what I said about him and my godfather. I love them so much. And I shouted them out and tried to give them an extra special Father's Day on this wonderful, beautiful Sunday in Los Angeles. So I got a couple of things coming up today that I wanted to talk about. I will be going to the AFI Docs Film Festival in a couple of weeks. Not a couple of weeks, I'm sorry, later on this week. And I wanted to give you a sneak peek of that. I'm also going to talk about Men in Black Being Frank, which is directed by a friend of mine, and Emmanuel, a new documentary about the mass shooting in South Carolina. So let's get right on into it with Being Frank. Being Frank is directed by my friend Miranda Bailey. It's produced by Cold Iron Pictures, and it stars Jim Gaffigan. It's really kind of funny, and I'm not going to lie, it was surprisingly funny to me. Jim Gaffigan stars as this guy, Frank, who has two families, two wives, two sets of kids, and shenanigans ensue when they all try to go to the, I think it's the Starlight Festival, where he met both of his wives. And it's really quite funny. I really, really enjoyed it. It's like a, um, a com- if you saw that show that was on HBO, Big Love, which, a, which, which was a really serious drama with Bill Pullman, this is like a comedic virgin, 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 <laughs> a comedic version of Big Love. It's really, really, really funny. Um, He's navigating these two families. Um, The son, Eddie, finds out that his best friend is gay. Um, He blackmails his dad into not telling his mom about the other family. And it's really, underneath all of the comedy, it's really dealing with the issues and the relationship and how men navigate having a relationship with their sons. Because usually... Daddies kind of navigate toward their little girls, you know, as daddy's little girl. And sons and fathers always have, you know, a little bit more of a contentious type of relationship. But I really enjoyed it, and you will too. It is in theaters right now, and again, it is directed by Miranda Bailey and produced by Cold Iron Pictures. Next up on the chopping block is Emmanuel. Now, I don't know if any of you remember, and you should remember, I mean, mass shootings are becoming 
like a daily occurrence here in America. We have one here in Southern California just this week at Costco. I'm like, really? Now we can't go to the grocery store and go shopping without fear of somebody busting out a gun? I just, I can't handle it. It's really, it's really not, it's becoming the norm. And because it's becoming the norm, people are kind of becoming deaf to it. And we should never become deaf to anything that results in a loss of life. Having said that, Emmanuel is a documentary that's produced by Steph Curry, Viola Davis, Mariska Hargitay, and it deals with that mass shooting at the Emanuel AME Church in South Carolina. This is going to make you cry. It's going to give you a different spin on what you think forgiveness is or what you think forgiveness should be because these people who lost their loved ones that had their church, their place of worship, the place that they're supposed to be safe and go to, for solace, had that infiltrated by a stranger, and I will not mention him by name because he does not deserve that much attention. But the one place that they're supposed to go to for safety and solace and prayer was infiltrated by a stranger, and it resulted in a loss of life. Most people in that situation would hold a grudge against that individual for the rest of their life. The people that are the survivors from this shooting, the family members, they are the most stellar example of what forgiveness should look like if you call yourself a Christian, straight up. It was really a riveting documentary to watch. And kudos to Steph Curry and Viola and Mariska for bringing this to light. It is a beautiful, beautiful story. And it's, it's a reminder of, of how we really need to try to do something as a society to get gun control under control in America. It is playing, is a Fathom Events joint that's only going to be in theaters for two days, only for two days. On Jan- June, January, wow, I, I'm mixing up my J's. Only on June 17th and June 19th. June 17th, June 19th are the only two days you will be able to see Emmanuel. Go to fathomevents.com, F-A-T-H-O-M, events.com to get your tickets and check out this documentary. You won't regret it, I promise you. <laughs> um, and last but not least... Let's just talk about Men in Black for a second. Now, you know, Men in Black is this the fourth chapter of the Men in Black franchise. It's starring Tessa Thompson and Chris Hemsworth. And this is actually their third pairing up because they paired up for Thor Ragnarok through Marvel. And then they paired up again through Marvel for Avengers Endgame. So this is literally the third time we've seen them pairing up on screen. And they're fantastic in the film. The, if anything else, you want to go see Men in Black just to see the chemistry between them and to hear the voiceover from Kumail Nanjani, who plays Pawnee. He is pure up comedy, hysterical, had me rolling in the aisles. But what I will say about Men in Black International is that, you know, the first one came out in 1997. It starred Tommy Lee Jones and Will Smith. And it was groundbreaking for its time. It was groundbreaking CGI. It was a groundbreaking buddy film, sci-fi buddy film, because we paired somebody who was at the top of the hip-hop game with somebody who was at the top of the acting game at the time, Tommy Lee Jones. And that had not really been done up until that point. So it was groundbreaking for those reasons. And it busted box office records everywhere. It's really, really difficult to recreate that magic. It's like trying to catch lightning in a bottle from my perspective. Um, 
And I think that if you are a fan of the Men in Black franchise, because like I said, this is the fourth incarnation of it. If you're a fan of that franchise, then you will enjoy this one too. You will enjoy Men in Black International because it's in the Men in Black franchise and you're a fan of that franchise. In the theater where I screened it, it was a mix of people. It was a mix of studio execs, a mix of critics, a mix of regular people. And at the end of the credits, you know, people were applauding and cheering and they were laughing and they really enjoyed it. So again, Men in Black International, the fourth incarnation of the Men in Black series, is produced by Columbia Pictures, is directed by F. Gary Gray, who's a brother. What's up, F. Gary Gray? <laughs> so I went to see it for for. F. Gary Gray, Tessa Thompson, and Chris Hemsworth. That's why I went, because I, you know, I like the two of them, and I'm a fan of F. Gary Gray's. So, again, oh, and I forgot to mention Emma Thompson is in it. Being the boss of all bosses, she is, like, the boss of the summer, because she's the boss in Men in Black, and she's also the boss in Late Night, which is also in theaters now. So both of those films are in theaters right now. Check them out if you get an opportunity. Now. Michael B is like, so Monday and Tuesday, I got it about Emmanuel. Great. I'm glad you got it. (laughs) Um, Let me talk about the AFI Docs Film Festival. The AFI Docs Film Festival is one of my favorite film festivals to attend. And as I've discussed on this show before, I've been to Sundance. I've been to the Toronto International Film Festival. I've been to the AFI Film Festival, which happens here in L.A. I used to attend the L.A. Film Festival, which no longer exists. And I'm a film festival kind of... I've been to South by Southwest. I'm a film festival kind of chick. I love going to the festivals and seeing films and and networking and hanging out with with my fellow peeps in, in in that lane. But what I really love about the AFI Docs Film Festival is that it's a film festival that focuses strictly on documentary film, which is totally my jam. And I love documentary films because they focus on one subject, one person, one event, and you actually end up learning something. It's like going to history class through cinema, is which is why which is why I like um, documentary films and which is why I particularly love AFI Docs Film Festival and they have a couple of films that come out of there every year that end up either getting nominated for Oscars or winning Oscars period end of sentence won an Oscar I saw that at, at AFI Docs Film Festival last year and um, there was another one too I can't remember the name of it right now but there were two of them that were nominated and one of them won so it's a really good festival to kind of get involved with and to check it out and to, you know, just get your swerve on. So I just, if you're in the D.C. area listening to this, or if you're not, just be on the lookout for these documentaries that I want to tell you about. Um, I just wanted to mention three of them, and then I have an interview with the third one. So I'll tell you about the first two first. There's one in honor of Pride Month called Gay Chorus Deep South, and it is about exactly that, a gay chorus in the Deep South. And for Pride Month, it's right on time. You will enjoy that one. Raise Hell, The Life and Times of Molly Ivins. Now, I don't know if y'all know who Molly Ivins is, but Molly Ivins, she, she's, a, she's a chick, but she really was a good old boy from Texas. She talked with a really thick Texas twang. Like, you had to really kind of, like, pause for a second to understand what she was saying. But Molly was um, one of those people that she... they. In Washington, they considered her a troublemaker. They didn't. Ha- they hated to see her coming because she would just tell the truth. 
She would, with all her Southern goodness, she would tell the truth. She would read people on a regular basis on television, off television, in the newspaper. At one point, she was one of the the most prolific, um, highest rated, most sought after political columnist in our country. Um, and she knew that the Bill of Rights was in peril. And what's really interesting is that the at the height of when Molly Ivins was was you know, at the height of her career was which was during the George W. Bush presidency. She would call folk out and she would talk about how corrupt our government was and how our government is run by money and that here in America we need to learn how to take more control and take the power back of our government because we elect these people to these positions. We as citizens of the United States decide who gets in office and who doesn't. So we need to take our power back and we need to let the people know, even the ones that have money, that the buck stops with us, not with these private interest groups that will fund somebody's campaign. And then once the people are elected, they forget that their interest should be the American people. And they start trying to pay back these people that have funded their money with that almighty green. So her documentary is called Raise Hell, The Life and Times of Molly Ivins. Now, the one that is going to come up next, which I love, and let me just shout out Jenna James. Hello, Jenna James, for joining us. She says that... um, she said she's going to wait on MIB and that she loved Shaft, didn't see all the critics hate. Um, you know, the, she didn't see all the critics hate. There were some cheesy moments with Jesse T. Usher. You, I'll talk about Shaft in a little bit. I, just stay, stay tuned, uh, Jenna James. We're going to talk about Shaft in a minute. Um, I, oh, I left one other one out. There's one other documentary. It's called Mike Wallace. Now, you young, you young people out there. <laughs> um, Mike Wallace was kind of like Peter Jennings, but he was at CBS News, and he used to rub people the wrong way all the time. He would ask people like those really tabloidish, TMZ-ish type of questions, and he would come for folk on the regular. And people hated him, but they could not negate the fact that Mike Wallace was probably one of the best journalists out there. Hands down, one of the best journalists out there. He has a documentary that's playing at AFI Docs as well that you might want to see. And I think it's going to hit theaters in about a month. So this will. most of these films do hit the theaters. And when they do, I will come back on the air and let you know when they are available for worldwide release or national release so that you can check them out at a theater or stream them at home. All right, so... This film coming up next is called St. Louis Superman. Now, I am a native of St. Louis, Missouri. I say that all the time. I'm really proud to be from the Midwest. And when I was growing up in St. Louis, it was a place where you literally could leave your doors unlocked. You could leave your car doors unlocked. You could sleep with your door open and nobody would ever bother you. Today, the St. Louis that I do not live in, but the St. Louis that I grew up in, today in 2019... St. Louis, Missouri is one of the top cities, probably in the top five, for one of the worst cities of crime, which makes me so incredibly sad. But we have Bruce Franks Jr., the St. Louis Superman, on the horizon. He's in the House of Representatives in St. Louis for the Missouri State Legislature. He ran for office after being on the front lines at Ferguson and doing some other things. And now he is in the House of Representatives representatives, excuse me, trying to change lives for the people in our hometown. I sat down and I spoke with Bruce. I spoke with the filmmakers and producers and directors, Smirti Mundra 
and Sammy Khan. And I want you to take a listen to this conversation. It's a pretty lengthy one, and I left it long on purpose because I think everything that we discuss needs to be said and needs to be heard. Take a listen. The biggest thing that struck me was at the beginning of the film when it said that St. Louis was the number one city for crime in the country. That broke my heart. I grew up in a St. Louis where you literally could leave your doors open, leave your car doors unlocked. You could actually leave your wallet and your keys in your car and nobody would bother it. Like, it really was straight up, like, something out of a movie. I want to go back there. You know, I was going to ask you, you never grew up in that kind of St. Louis, did you? What area did you go up? I grew up all over the place because my dad was in the Marine Corps. My mother and father were born and raised there. So we would stay there for a minute, then we'd leave, then we'd come back, then we'd leave, then we'd come back. But I lived in North St. Louis. I lived in South St. Louis. I lived all over St. Louis. My 34 years, we ain't never been able to leave our doors open or, or none of that. That makes me so sad, so sad. How did you guys become aware of Bruce? I read a lot, and I read a lot of local papers and Reddit threads and things like that, and I came across a newspaper article about Bruce that was like a profile, and it had a video where he sort of spoke a little bit about his background and his philosophy and his approach to community leadership and things like that. I mean, first and foremost, was extremely captivating by his story and the way that it challenged a lot of, I think, people's preconceived notions about young black men. I mean, I remember there was one interview when I started researching a little bit more. I think someone just assumed that he had been to, he spent time in prison. And he's like, no, actually, I haven't been in prison. And I'm married and I have, you know, kids and things like that. I think what he was doing was really captivating, especially in 2017, 2018, when everything political felt so hopeless and angering that he sort of just felt somebody who deserved a larger bullhorn to talk about his message. And I just, for me, it just really started from there. And I, I sent Sammy the article and we talked about it. And I said, I'm going to try to get in touch with this guy and see if there's something that he wants to tell, something that's going on in his life. We didn't have any particular story in mind or any objective, any kind of narrative that we were trying to fill in telling the story. We just wanted to get a hold of him and see, like, what if you had the attention of tens of millions of people, like, what would you want to tell them about yourself and your life and about St. Louis, about Ferguson, about black men and all of that and that's where really things originated it took a while getting the call back <laughs> <laughs> like, just because she won't talk about this, but just to hit on Ricky's tenacity and just doggedness and, and pursuing Bruce, like she really fought for the story with the producers of the project, also convinced Bruce to let us in. And I think that's like an important part of it, that Bruce opening his door to us, the project would be nothing without those two things. Bruce just like totally understanding what we were doing and taking a leap of faith to believe that we weren't interested in exploiting or doing a kind of tabloid thing, but film about really just a father and a son. Bruce may have a totally different perspective on how did you feel when these two filmmakers came to you and they, they were like we read your story we think it's really interesting we'd like to do a film about it what was your what was the first thing that ran across your mind when they contacted you that it was like every other person who kind of hit us up about doing stuff about Ferguson or the work we were doing unfortunately I kind of just put them in a box because I had some bad experiences with, with films, with people making films. Smirti is the best type of stalker. <laughs> um, 
she found me on Facebook, she found me on Twitter, email, whatever means it took. And so finally, um, my assistant, who is my closest friend, I told her, I'm like, look, check them out. If you say do it, then I'm going to do it. Because she reads, she watches a lot of documentaries, she's really informed, so I was like, I'm going to leave it up to you. Whatever Smith did to her, she called me back ASAP and was like, if you don't do nothing else, you have to get with these people. And so when they came in, the first time it was just supposed to be kind of like a conversation and, you know, us hang out, get to know each other, which kind of, you know, let my guard down too because most folks don't come to you like that when they're trying to get something done. And I could tell that it was genuine. When I met them, they made me comfortable. They made me feel like this was a film being done not because of anything else outside of, you know, letting somebody tell a story that needs to be told, not just for the community in St. Louis, but the entire community, you know, all the communities that look like ours around the nation. And so they had this platform and they were willing to tell my story. They were willing to let me tell my story. That was the most important part of it. This story warmed my heart for a variety of reasons. It's really good to know that someone like yourself has decided to not sit back on the sidelines and complain because what happens nowadays, especially in the culture and the climate that we're living in, is a lot of people will sit back and complain, you know, get amongst their groups or their peers and constituents and discuss what's going on in our world. But very few people take it a step further and step up and do something about it. So I applaud you for not sitting on the sidelines and getting fed up to the point where you decided to do something about it, running for Congress, getting a seat and passing a bill. Can you talk to me briefly about what the bill is that you had passed and what was the impetus behind that? For people that haven't seen the film, which is going to be playing at the AFI docs, I would like for you to tell them a little bit about that. The bill has three different parts to it. It's a house concurrent resolution with the clause to act, so that means that it's an actual bill, but we had to do it that way because it had three different subjects. One is it identifies youth violence as a public health epidemic. So Missouri now identifies youth violence as a public health epidemic so that we can get more grant funding, more money from the federal government as well to speak to the root causes of gun violence and everything that's tied in with the root causes of gun violence. The CDC had already made violent public health epidemic, but they never did youth violence because they clumped it all together. By us doing that, we, we would be able to get more funds, more resources. Second part is it encourages our educational system to use trauma-informed training for our teachers because we have teachers that come from places like Teach for America and all these places where they mean well and they want to do great work, but they just don't come from our communities. So they come with this cookie-cutter approach to kids who have areas and feel like, okay, well, this is what should be done in order for them to be successful, but they don't even understand what they're going through each and every day before they get to school and after they leave school. It's just incur- basically encouraging our education system to do trauma-informed training. The third and most important to me personally is that identifies June 7th as Christopher Harris Day, named after my brother who was killed in 1991 when he was nine years old. He was used as a human shield. And when my brother was killed, it's sparked the first ever gun buyback uh-huh. and removed like 7,000 guns from the streets. But it's a day of advocacy to talk about youth violence, to talk about gun violence prevention and violence prevention as a whole when it comes out of young people. I'm so excited that there's someone like you in Congress. You're a regular, ordinary dude. You're a rapper. You're an activist. You're a dad. And now you're a state rep. I'm so excited for you and I'm so excited to see what's going to come out for you next in terms of legislation and your role in 
politics in the state of Missouri. This is for all three of you guys, actually. I want to know what your thoughts are regarding our government having so much energy toward immigration and not enough energy toward banning guns. Because last week, yet again, we had another school shooting. Yep. Sammy and I have a lot of thoughts about that. I think it's that there's just we've gone so far where money just dominates politics and it's so rare to get politicians and public officials who actually represent the people. That's the reason is because the NRA is such a huge lobby and why what Bruce was able to do in the Missouri House is so incredible because here's, you know, Mr. Smith goes to Washington, Mr. Franks goes to Jefferson City. That's what the story is. This guy is like a regular guy with deep ties to his community. And Bruce's success, I think, can be a model for other politicians. And you, you see it now with a new wave, a new generation of leaders in Washington, D.C., but more people should pay attention to how Bruce was able to build connections, not just with Democrats, but Republicans, too. You can look to see how Bruce is able to cut through the clutter and the noise, which is what the media and, like, powerful interests want you to do. They just want you to hear the noise and not be feel so helpless that you can't do anything. But Bruce is able to cut through that and kind of inspire people and also just get stuff done. So that's what I think. I think that it's money, it's noise, but, you know, at the, at the end of the day, we have to move forward for the things that we know are right. And people should pay attention to what Bruce is doing and what he's done. I think that's a really good assessment. Everything in this country comes down to the almighty dollar. I mean, let's just keep it real. And how it's spent and who has it. That's just the way it is. It's unfortunate, but that's the way it is. But very few politicians put their money where their mouth is or put back into the community what they say. They give a lot of empty promises when they're running. And then once they're in, they usually, you know, make it their business to answer all of the people that got them in there, the ones with the pocketbooks that got them in there. So I applaud you and appreciate you and respect you, Bruce, for putting your money where your mouth is, not walking around with empty promises. You walk in the walk and you talk in the talk. And as somebody that is a native of St. Louis and the state of Missouri, I appreciate that. So thank you. That's great. Yeah, I think, sorry, Bruce, let me just jump in one final thought for me. But like, I think we have to have like Bruce's back because it takes a lot to not only take on special interests on the other side of the aisle, but special interests on your own side of the aisle. And that's where like people of conscience need to understand that Bruce put himself on the line and we need to have his back too. I got your back. That's why I'm interviewing you. All I needed to see in the title was St. Louis. I'm like, yep, I'm in. I am in. I wanted to add something to what Sammy said. Two things, actually. One is, I think that actually it doesn't really come down to the almighty dollar because it's not in anybody's financial interest to keep immigrants out of this country or regulate women's bodies or, you know, any of the other things. I mean, I think ultimately it comes down to, to put it bluntly, white people in power acting in the interest to keep, white, you know, blaming everybody but white men for everything that's wrong in society, whether it's women, whether it's trans people, LGBTQ people, whether it's black community, immigrants, whatever it is, the blame for anything that's wrong in society shifts everywhere but towards white men. That's honestly how I feel. As we've seen in this last week with the terrorists and this and that, it's nobody's, it's a nobody's financial interest to do what we're doing with immigration. And then just in terms of what Sammy was saying about people like us who, you know, have a lot of privilege to really have the backs of people like Bruce who are putting them themselves out there to make change. One of the things that really struck me, you know, over the course of making the film and seeing, you know, what happened in 2018 with the elections then 
is that people like Bruce and the sort of first wave, even someone like Ilhan Omar and some of, you know, Rashida Tlaib and some of the other Congress, uh, the freshman congressmen who are congresspersons who are taking office now, they're part of a first wave of people who, who don't come from political dynasties, who are not older white men and have been groomed for politics their whole life, taking a seat at the table. We always talk about how thrilling that is and how exciting and how it, it barks hope, but it also comes at a cost and I think can't really be ignored either. One of the things that we talked to Bruce about early on and really struck us early on in, in telling his story was the fact that he had to every day sort of rip open his deepest wounds, his deepest trauma to do his job and for the sake of everyone else, explaining to people on the opposite side of the aisle or to get resources for his community. He had to really sort of put himself out there and I think he could speak to this, I won't speak for him, but I think that takes a toll. Sometimes there are other ways for people of color and women especially to influence what happens in our own communities, in our own neighborhoods, outside of politics. And I think that's just as important, community activism and being open with your story. You know, I think these are ways also to sort of shift these dynamics, you know, besides just running for office. Running for office is great, you know, if, if you can do it and if you have the, the resources and the, the skill to do it, you know, like Bruce did, I think it's amazing. But there's lots of ways to sort of change, you know, what's happening at a national and local level. And, and it also, you know, holding, you know, being a public figure, especially when you come from marginalized community, comes at a deep cost. And we also have to be sympathetic to that when we talk about it. not hold them up as heroes, but also really recognize like when stuff gets really difficult. Absolutely. And I agree with you. One thing I did want to point out is that not all political dynasties and cities are white men. In St. Louis, the political dynasty that lives in St. Louis and has dominated the political scene there is the Clay family. Generations of Clays that have been in office there. There are people of color that have political dynasties across the country. And the only reason I know about the Clays is because, like I said, I'm from St. Louis and they've been in power there for decades. And they almost got, and they were challenged by Cora Bush, who's in another documentary, Knocked Down the House. I literally could have this conversation with you guys for hours because you're really smart, you're really knowledgeable. And I just feel like it's a great conversation that we're having. But the one thing that struck me and really stayed with me after I watched this film was the fact that Bruce, you and your son at the beginning of the film are talking about August 9th. That's the day that your son was born. That's also the day that Michael Brown was shot. Why did you all collectively decide to start the film with that moment? I didn't know they was going to start like that. <laughs> it, it turned out great. You know, I think um, Carlos, one of the themes that we really wanted to explore through the film was the idea of the loss of innocence, especially when, as it comes to young black men and something that Bruce and I talked about early on in one of our very first conversations was when he lost his brother, he was six years old, and how transformative that was for him, how that kind of was essentially the end of his childhood. We talked about Mike Brown, and that's a young man whose potential in life was cut short, and for a lot of young people who saw that and who lived through that, whether it was literally on the streets protesting or through the news, not just Mike Brown, but all the people of color who have been killed by police before and after. It's essentially every time you see something like that, it sort of chips away at your childhood and it's something that we talk to Bruce about a lot in regard to his own son. King is the most pure heart, the most innocent, inquisitive child and, you know, we one of the first questions I asked Bruce, like, you know, in early days when we were filming was, do you worry about him losing his childhood? Sammy and I discussed it and we both have kids too and we are lucky enough to be able to raise our kids essentially in a bubble and preserve that to that. You know, Bruce wasn't so lucky. A lot of kids grow up, you know, in St. Louis and then, you know, other economically distressed communities aren't so lucky. Mike Brown wasn't that lucky. It's something we wanted to explore, and it just so happened, you know, the dates of 
King's birthday and, you know, and um, the day Mike Brown was killed, that became sort of a, a narrative device, you know, to, to sort of connect those dots. But it was, the theme was really important to us from the beginning. And hopefully it came across that way in the film. It certainly did. Just to close it out, I just want to say that I I enjoyed this conversation more than anything. I'm so proud of you, Bruce Franks Jr. Thank you for offering to let your life be put on a for other people to see you and be inspired by you. Thank you, Smirti Mundra and Sammy Khan for stalking Bruce in order for us to get this story on the screen. And I will see you guys at the AFI Docs Festival, which is playing the 19th through the 23rd in Washington, D.C. So if you guys are in the Washington metro area, please, please please grab a ticket and go see this i promise you it will change your life thank you so much you're welcome thank you okay. bye. bye 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 you guys when i and this is a short film it's not even a narrative film it's a short film and i generally don't even talk about shorts on this show or or review them because there's so many of them it's like thousands and thousands and thousands of short films but I had to give this some love because, like I said, I am a native of St. Louis, Missouri. I grew up there. My parents were born and raised there. It's my hometown. So I had to give this particular short some love. I had to give Bruce Frank some love. I thank him, Smirti Mundra, and Sammy Khan for taking the time to speak to me. I wholeheartedly um enjoyed speaking to them. Like I said, people have been asking me in the chat room how they can help uh, Bruce Franks Jr. with his mission and I would suggest I'll find out the direct address and I'll find out the, the site for St. Louis Superman but I would suggest looking up the House of Representatives for the state of Missouri and writing to him there um, but I will find that address and I will post it on my Instagram page or my Twitter page so that you guys can have that information directly alright so just to recap I will be at the AFI Docs Film Festival. It runs from June 19th through June 23rd. Three of the films that I talked about here were St. Louis Superman, Raise Hell, The Life of Molly Ivins, and Gay Chorus, Deep South are just a few. If you want more information about the AFI Docs, go to afi.com or go to AFI Docs on Twitter and you can see the whole schedule for all of the films in the descriptions and the trailers and the previews of all of the films playing there at those two locations. All right. Now let's get into a little news action. <laughs> I love talking about news. Um, let's see here. Oh, yes. So I saw a film... I was invited to see a film by my friend Nick May and Van Lathan. Van Lathan, you guys might know from TMZ. And they produced a film called Uppity. It is about the very first black race car driver. His name is Willie T. Ribs. Willie T. Ribs. And the film is called Uppity because when he was doing his thing trying to become a racer, because that was his passion, that was his love, People that weren't having him in that space would call him an uppity N-word. So they can't name the film Uppity N-word, so they just shortened it to Uppity. I don't know when this film is going to be released. They are looking for distribution right now, but I wanted to give them some love. Adam Carolla is also a producer on that film, so it's being produced by Nick May, Van Latham, Adam Carolla, and another guy, I forget, his name is Nate. I'm so sorry, Nate. But you guys, be on the lookout for Uppity. I also saw another film called Windows of the World. 
It is starring Edward James Almost, and it's dealing with this young man who is an immigrant. His father decides to go to New York City, and then 9-11 happens. And so he leaves his hometown to go to New York City to look for his dad. He ends up finding a whole lot more than his father, and it's a it, most of the time when you see these stories about 9-11, it's always about the events that happened that day or the people that were involved in it that day. But this was the first time I'd ever seen a film that dealt with it from the perspective of an immigrant point of view. You know, not all of the people that were trapped in that tower were New York City Americans. Some people had come to New York City to raise money for their families and to do things for their families and got then lost their lives or got injured or died from 9-11 related illnesses. And this was the first time I'd ever seen a film from that vantage point. So I would like to thank AFCA, the African American Film Critics Association, for allowing me to go screen that film again. I think they're still looking for distribution, but when that film is released and when Uppity is released, I will let you know quick, fast, and in a hurry because I loved both of those films and I think that they're important. This has been a really deep, introspective, emotional, political day here at The Curvy Critic, and I'm not a real political person, but I'm a human rights person, and I care about human rights. I care about human life. I care about rights of 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 people that are considered minority in this country, like women, LGBTQ, Latin, Asian, African-American. I have a microphone. I have a voice. I have a platform. So if I can voice those opinions and talk about some films that shed light on those issues, I will do that. Moving on. Also in the news was... um, well, this happened last week, actually. The governors, the, the Oscars, the Academy Awards, they always give out Governor Award Oscars. They usually pick four people. This year, they picked Gina Davis. And you guys might know Gina Davis from Thelma and Louise. A lot of people know her from Thelma and Louise. But Gina Davis is the founder and chair of the Gina Davis Institute. And she also has a film festival that she chairs called the Bentonville Film Festival that is to support women in diversity and entertainment. So she's being honored with that that honorary, you know, Governor Award Oscar. David Lynch is a four-time Oscar nominee. He's also being nominated. You might know him from The Elephant Man, Blue Velvet, Mulholland Drive. Um, he also did Eraserhead, The Straight Story, Wild at Heart, Dune. Um, he's doing some, oh, he's doing the reboot of, I'm sorry, of Twin Peaks on Showtime. And um, he's being honored. Two other people that are being honored are Wes Studi, who is known for working on Dances with Wolves, Geronimo, and he's Indian. He's a Cherokee Indian. So that's kind of cool. At least they're they're mixing it up and not making... See, this is the thing. When people talk about diversity, they automatically assume that we mean Black, Latino, and Asian. There are other ethnicities in America other than those three. So this is wonderful that they're acknowledging the Indian community. He's an activist of Cherokee descent. Oops. He's an activist of Cherokee descent, and he's been in a lot of films. He also uh, shared an original song with with Buffy St. Marie of Up Where We Belong from the 1982 movie, An Officer and a Gentleman. Um, Also being honored from Italy is Lily Wertmuller. She is 90 years old, y'all. She is making history by becoming the first woman ever nominated well, she made history for becoming the first woman ever nominated for the Best Director Oscar in 1975 for Seven Beauties. So she is being honored. So we have those four people being honored for the Governor's Award, and they usually broadcast that live or they do a um, 
a special night separate and apart, but there's been some talk this year that they may not do the Governor's Award separate and apart, so I'll keep you apprised of the progress with that. Also in the news is Lee Daniels yet again, but this is for something good. Lee Daniels is partnering up with Playtone to do a title... Uh, um, I'm sorry, a feature film based on Sammy Davis Jr. The working title is called Sammy. And, um, you know, there have been several attempts to make Sammy Davis Jr.'s story into a biopic. Paramount Pictures last year with producers Lorenzo D. Bonaventura, Lionel Richie, and Mike Mitchell um, as well as Davis's estate tried to do that, but I think that probably fell through the cracks. If you're not familiar with Sammy Davis Jr., I highly suggest that you Google him. He was from Harlem. He was a triple threat. He could sing, he could dance, he could act. A lot of people know him from being part of the Rat Pack. He was the only person of color in the Rat Pack. He ended up in that Ocean's Eleven movie with his his good friend Frank Sinatra and, and uh, Joey Bishop and Dean Martin and Peter Lawford. All of them are no longer with us, but they were wonderful, wonderful friends. He also made made news for he had a penchant for marrying white women when it was illegal to have mixed marriages in this country. And he got a lot of flack for that. At one point, the studios actually made him marry someone of color just to have a beard or have, you know, to show people that he was married to someone of color because him being married to a white woman in this country was a problem. He also enjoys huge success with a song called The Candy Man. You hear it being sung by Aloe Black in those Eminem commercials, but it was sung by Sammy Davis Jr. first. So, um, and... Lee Daniels, in case y'all don't know who Lee Daniels is, but I can't imagine that you wouldn't, um, he's known for producing Star and Empire on Fox. So that is it. And uh, Oh, and if you want to see some footage of Sammy Davis Jr. dancing, there is a special that he did with Gregory Hines when he was ailing. They did a big special for Sammy Davis Jr., and Gregory Hines hosted it. There's some really wonderful footage of him and Gregory Hines dancing together. It will bring tears to your eyes, but it will bring you joy, too, to see this mentor and this mentee doing their thing together. All right. Well, I got a couple of minutes left. Um, let me see. Michael B. said, there seriously has never been... No, there has never been a Sammy Davis Jr. biopic for a variety of reasons. There have been some documentaries, because I saw a documentary either last year or a year before last. It's called I Gotta Be Me. You should check that one out. It's a documentary called I Gotta Be Me, based on his really popular song that he... That was like his signature song. I gotta be me, I gotta be me. That song right there. So he sang that. And, oh, he actually, there's footage of him singing that in the documentary that's on Netflix right now called The Black Godfather about Clarence Avant. There's a whole section in that documentary about Sammy Davis Jr. and that song. So, ooh, child, I talked a lot. I talked fast. I really enjoyed that interview that um, I did with Sammy, Smirty, and Bruce Franks Jr. I'm glad that I gave y'all some insight into the AFI Docs Film Festival. We talked about Men in Black. We talked about Being Frank. We talked about Emmanuel. Remember, Emmanuel is in two is in theaters for two days only. Go to fathomevents.com to check that out. Next week, I will come to you with Maiden, which is a really good story about some really fierce females. Toy Story 4 drops next week, and so does Yesterday, the narrative film that has some little Beatlemania going on. And I may or may not have a special guest here for that. But until then, you can always find me across all social media platforms 
at The Curvy Critic. You can find me right after this over at After Buzz TV for the General Hospital After Show, or the GH Report, as we like to call it. And then a couple of hours after that, you can find me back at After Buzz TV for the After Show for American Princess on Lifetime, where we will have a special guest there, Miss Shauna, who plays Maggie, a.k.a. the Queen on American Princess. She's going to join us for the discussion. So, until the next time... Go to YouTube, y'all. Give me some love. Talk to me. I thank everybody that was in the chat room. Michael B., Marlon Wallace, Jenna James, and my boy, Boss Solid LaCostra Nostra. Thank you so much for joining me in the chat room today. Appreciate you. Glad you could make it out. Happy Father's Day to your dads. If if they're still with you, give them some love. Give them a kiss. Take them out for a little din-din or a little cocktail or some coffee or tea or whatever their joint is, whatever their jam is. Let them know that you love them. And, um, oh, somebody's asking me if I have a favorite film that was set in or about St. Louis. Meet me in St. Louis, of course. Meet me in St. Louis is one of my favorite films about St. Louis. (laughs) But alas, it is time for me to go. I'm so sad. So until the next time, join me next week for episode 65 of The Curvy Critic with Carla Renata here at Black Hollywood Live, where again, we will be talking about Maiden, Yesterday, and Toy Story 4. Oh, and the Toni Morrison doc. I forgot to mention the Toni Morrison doc, but I'll talk about that next week because I have some things to say about that. And um, yeah, I will see you guys then. So until then... Love, peace, and hair grease. Deuces. Bye-bye. See you later. Love you, mean it. (laughs) On behalf of our PHL staff, we would like to thank you for tuning in to Black Hollywood Live, the world's first digital broadcast network devoted entirely to urban entertainment and pop culture. Check out our Black Hollywood Live YouTube page for even more great programming and amazing content. And be sure to subscribe and like our channel when you do. I'm your BHL host, Nakia Monet, and you can find me on all social media at Kiki Boom Boom or at Black Hollywood Live. Black Hollywood Live. Hollywood Redefined.